All right, I get to introduce our guest speaker this morning. Larry Kim is the pastor of Cambridge Community Fellowship Church in Central Square and a sister church in our denomination. Um, if you hang around him much, you figure out that he usually brings a skateboard with him. Last appointment that I went to, he came by skateboard. I came in my car. Um, <laughs> if you hang around him very much, you figure out this guy cares about social justice. He cares about racial reconciliation. And he doesn't just talk about it. He actually spends time with, has spent lots of time with youth at risk. Um, the ministries that his, that he, I mean, you spin him around 360 degrees and he comes back with 22 more new ideas about what we can do to make the world a better place in Jesus' name. And so when, as pastors, we were talking about the beatitude, blessed are the merciful, because they will be known as the children of God. Um, we thought, who would be able to practically speak to this theme? And Larry Kim is the one that came to mind. So Larry, would you come and teach us from the word of God? Welcome. Am I up here? People never, never fall off from this thing? No? <laughs> yes, all right. Good morning, Cornerstone. Yeah, all right. Man, I am um, so excited uh, to be here with you today. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, I love this church. I have a lot of love uh, for the pastors in this church, for the former pastors in this church. Um, I have all sorts of history here. Um, so I'm just really excited uh, to be here and have the privilege uh, of bringing God's word to you today. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Larry. And um, if you've heard me speak before, what I like to say is that I'm an unexpected pastor. And I always say this because I, I can't believe this is what I do with my life. I can't believe people pay me to do this. Um, I come from a, a slightly unusual family. I have two younger brothers. Uh, one of my brothers uh, started a clothing company and is deep into the fashion world. Um, he uh, started a company called The Hundreds, and he goes by the name Bobby Hundreds. And so that's his life. And then I have another younger brother, um, and until recently, he did artist management for a rapper named Snoop Dogg. So turn to the uh, person next to you and say, Snoop Dogg. Yeah, we're going to have fun today. <laughs> uh, and I became a pastor, and I became a pastor, and somehow I'm the black sheep in the family, and I always turn to my brother, I'm like, you work for Snoop Dogg. How is it that you're judging my life and the decisions that I've made? Um, but here I am, um, and, I, and I love my job, and I, and I can't believe I get to do this. So today, I'm going to step into the sermon series that you guys have been in uh, called Blessed, um, and if you've been out of town or you haven't been tracking, uh, what we're looking at is the greatest sermon of all time uh, preached by Jesus himself uh, called the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be walking through this and looking at what it means to live a blessed life. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And I'll be reading from the ESV, the extra spicy version. Turn at Matthew chapter 5. And I'll start reading from verse 1. From verse 1. This is what it says. It says, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And today we're going to look specifically at one verse, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You guys ready? Right? Can I pray for us? Yeah? Let me pray, and we'll dive in. God, we... Um, Thank you that you are here. We thank you that we are not just bodies occupying seats, but that the creator who breathed life into the world is breathing life into us now. And that God is here and dwells with us here and is moving here. And you know us better than we know ourselves. And it's not an accident that you've brought us through those doors and into this place of worship. God, we pray that as we hear the word of God, We pray that we would be good soil. We pray that it would be a seed that would be planted deep and would bear good fruit. And we pray, God, that no matter where people are coming from, we just understand that you are here to meet us individually, but also to meet us corporately as Cornerstone Church. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, Let's dive in. Uh, So, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. So, let's do a little bit of the grunt work up front. Let's define mercy, right? So, every time a pastor is like, all right, according to the dictionary, everyone's like, but we got to do that at the very beginning. So, uh, let's define mercy at the very beginning. There's two different ways that I want to talk about mercy, two different ways that we want to define mercy. The first way is we want to talk about mercy as a way of treating people better than they deserve, Okay? And the other way we want to talk about mercy is living a bent life. Okay? Those two things. So let me break that down. First, mercy is treating people better than they deserve. So what does that mean? You forgive people. You show compassion on people. You turn the other's cheek. Uh, if someone hurts you, you withhold retaliation and you show mercy to that person. It's not unlike um, being meek. You know, Danny killed it in that, uh, that sermon. I listened to that meek, meekness sermon. So, so, so it's not very, very different from that sort of concept, that when somebody comes at you, you don't sort of take up your right to fight back, but you show forgiveness and you show compassion. In this way, God has shown mercy to all of us, hasn't he? He's shown mercy to all of us. Romans chapter 11, verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy. Because of their disobedience. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what we find here and in scriptures all over, God does not treat us the way that we deserve. God does not treat us the way that we deserve. Turn to the person next to you and say, that's good news. Good news. That's good news. Even for those of you who refused to do that and didn't turn, still good news for you. Still good news. So first, mercy is treating people better than they deserve. But here's a second one, and this is the one that I kind of want to really kind of get dirty with. Mercy is living a bent life. A bent life. And what, what, what do I mean by this? Instead of living our lives like everybody else and veering towards a life of money, power, respect, success, and comfort, instead of doing that, we bend our lives intentionally towards the poor, towards the oppressed 
towards the marginalized, towards the trafficked, whoever gave that, uh, towards the hungry, towards the disenfranchised. We bend our lives intentionally in that direction. God, of course, does this as well, most notably in the person and work of Jesus. Luke chapter 4, you find Jesus' mission statement. Before Jesus gets into ministry, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And of course, Jesus does exactly this. And when he says poor, yeah, he means spiritually poor, but he also means poor, poor. He means poor in every sense of that word. And Jesus does this. And Jesus, we know his life. He spends his life constantly attuned to the cries of the people around him, spending time in places that he should not go, hanging out with people that he should not be with. Mercy in his life bends his life towards the margins and towards the marginalized and towards the cries of people. So it's not surprising that Jesus would then say in his sermon, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So we can end this sermon here, and a lot of you would be fine with that, uh, because the sermon is, is, is in some ways very sort of self-explanatory. First, go and be merciful. Why? Because God's been merciful to you. The second point, bend your life towards the cries of people towards the margins of society, because that's what Jesus did. You do those two things, and you will be blessed. We pray, we end, we go about our lives. I'm going to keep preaching, though, because I get more time. What I want to kind of wrestle with is this. When I hear that, because I grew up in the church, this this isn't news for me. I'm not reading that, and I'm like, huh? I've known this stuff. I grew up in the church. But here's what I needed to wrestle with most of my life, this idea that to live a merciful life would be a blessed life, that is something that I have had to wrestle with. Is it true that blessed are the merciful? And is it true that when we live a merciful life that we are blessed by doing so? Is that true? And let me kind of explain it a little bit from my perspective. So I I, um, come from an immigrant family, and I'm just... I don't know all you guys, but I'm just looking at your faces, and I'm like, eh, maybe a lot of you guys did as well. <laughs> My parents immigrated here from Korea, and when they came here, um, the way that I was raised um, had, had uh, you know, I heard the same words over and over and over again in my childhood, and maybe for some of you it sounds uh, familiar. This is what, my, what I grew up with my parents telling me. They told me, hey, Larry, we came all the way from Korea for you. We gave up all of our friends for you. We gave up everything that we knew for you. We gave up all the food that we like to eat for you. We gave up the comforts of language for you. And you come home, and you bring home a B, and you come home, and, 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 and you can't meet curfew. So that on repeat, that's my childhood. And I only figured this out, I don't know, I don't want to figure this out, maybe in my early 30s or so. What I realized was, I also grew up in the church. I also grew up in the church. And the church has language that's startlingly similar. You see, there's this Jesus, and, I, and I've, this is the sermon. There's this Jesus. He came all the way from heaven 
for you. <laughs> he gave up everything he knew for you. And Jesus, of course, takes it to another level. When you get to those sermons where the nails are going through and the thorns are going and the spear is going in his side, Jesus gave up his life for you. And you can't read your Bible? And you can't make it to church on time? You can't love the poor? You can't live a merciful life? There's a way in which when we hear the commands or the invitations of God in this way, they get skewed. And instead of bringing life, they feel heavy. And so you see, you hear these messages where you're like, hey, you need to love the poor. You need to live your life in a different direction. You need to give up success and you need to go in the opposite direction. And we're like, that doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound like a blessed life. It feels like a religious obligation that if I don't meet it, I'm reminded all over again of how much I suck. Can I use that word in this church? I'm reminded how much again of just how far I fall short. It's another piece of religious obligation that gets added on to all the other religious obligations that the church places on me. So, blessed are the merciful. Is that true? Is that true? And of course, I'm going to say, it is true. (laughs) It is true. Blessed are the merciful. And here I'm going to kind of try to unpack this a little bit about why it is that living a merciful life, by doing so, that we are blessed by doing it. And there are four things I'm going to go through. Uh, We're going to talk about how mercy speaks into our identity. It speaks into our brokenness. It speaks into our purpose. And it speaks into our desires. All right? For those of you who like notes, I'm going to give you it up front. Identity, brokenness, purpose, and desire. There's a way in which living a merciful life speaks deeply and uniquely into those spaces. Let's start with the first one. Living a merciful life speaks into our identity, into our, our identity. It answers the question, who am I? Who am I? It answers that question. How does it do so? So let me go about it this way. Uh, last summer, I think it's been about a year or so, my son was six years old. We went to the playground. It was a nice day. We get to the playground, and there are four kids already at the playground. My son looks like me. The four kids at the playground don't look like him. And so we get out there into the playground. Those four kids, they're like fourth or fifth grade. My son is six. So he's out there, and we're playing. And then all of a sudden, these four kids, they point to my son, and they're like, hey, there's a Chinese kid here. Oh, there's a Chinese kid here. Oh, there's a Chinese kid here. And so my parenting style is like, my son's going to have to deal with this. So I said, let's see what you do. Let's see what you do. <laughs> so my son walks up to me, right? He walks up to me, and he's been dying to go out all day. He comes back to me. He's like, Daddy, I want to go home. So this is what I say to him. Corey, dude, go back to those kids. Tell them you're not Chinese. Tell them you're Korean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like the worst parent in the world because that's, that's exactly what I said. And, and of course, like... I don't know what's wrong with me because that doesn't solve anything. Uh, And we went home. We went home that day. Now what? I thought about that and I was like, I do not want my son to grow up like that. But guess what? He will grow up like that. He will in this country. As an Asian American, he will be discriminated against. And I know this. And I know all the stuff that I went through growing up, he's going to have to go through as well. Fine. But this is what I also know. That because of his skin color... There's a lot that he won't have to go through. Because of his skin color, like like millions of Americans out there, he's not going to have to second guess every time a cop pulls him over. 
Like millions of Americans out there, he's not going to have to second guess whether or not his loved ones will be deported in the middle of the night. Because of his skin color, he will not go through those specific things. And what was so sort of convicting for me as I brought this before the Lord is there's a way in which we cling to our own sense of being wronged, especially when we're minorities, especially when we feel like we're the ones who are disenfranchised. And what you realize, it's so difficult to live a merciful life when you are obsessed with everybody needing to show you mercy. Now, don't get me wrong. We do, you know, I'm, I'm a justice person, if you know me. I'm a justice person. But there's also a way in which when we're one-dimensional in that aspect, it, it, it prevents us from being merciful outside of that. And I've really been convicted by this, and the Lord's been doing something with me. I, I, I recently read this book um, by Erica Lee, and some of you might have read it. It's called The History of Asian America. It's a great book. It's a fun book to read. And there's a section in the book that was really captivating for me because she talks about how Asian Americans were the very first people group to be excluded from this country. Did you know that? Right? The very first laws that excluded a, a, a certain a group of people were designed towards Asians. They were Asian Exclusion Acts. Those were the very first laws in this country, and they were designed to exclude Asian Americans. What does that mean? Asian Americans, and again, I recognize that not everybody's Asian American here. I'm just talking about for me. But for, for Asian Americans... That means they are the first illegal immigrants in this country. And she kind of goes through the history, and some of the stories are just shocking. They, they talk about how Asian Americans, when they try to get into this country, they would pretend that they were Native American. Think about how crazy that is. They would pretend like they were black, and they would learn Spanish to pass off as Mexican. Think about the issues of immig- immigration, and think about how crazy that is. And then I think, how involved are Asian Americans in issues of immigration? How how involved am I in issues of immigration and deportation? And this is what I know. I don't care about that stuff. Why? Because it's irrelevant to me. It's irrelevant to me. My kids are probably not going to go through that. And until they go through something like that, I'm not going to care about it. But here, when I look at it, I'm like, oh, Asian Americans were the very first illegal immigrants. I was like, oh, this is my history. This is a history of my people. Maybe there's something here that I need to step into. When I think about mercy, and we live a merciful life, mercy does something, and it tells a different story, and it answers this question of who we are. It answers this question of our identity, and and, and forces us to grapple with our identity. And not just our ethnic identity. In the Bible, we're told that if you are a follower, you are grafted into the family of Israel. We are grafted into the family of Israel. Why is that a big deal? Because for me, again, I'm talking about just for me as a Korean American, I know my parents. I know a little bit my great, great, my, my grandparents, but then that's about it. The Korean War kind of wipes out everything. I have no history. I have no way to kind of figure out what's going on back there. there, there you know, and, and I'm like, so who, who am I? Where, where are my roots? Where did we come from? And when you wrestle with that question, you come back to Scripture. And what Scripture tells us, yes, your ethnic identity is part of your identity, but you have also been grafted into this family of Israel. And what does that mean? Israel is now my family. It means that when I read the Bible, the story of Exodus, that's my people. That means my people were oppressed by Pharaoh. That means my people were whipped by Pharaoh. That means my people were redeemed by God. That means my people were led and, and, and went through the Red Sea. Those are my people. My people came out the other side of the Red Sea to the, and wandered in the desert. Those are my people. My people. My people were led to the promised land. My people. 
Those are my people. And, 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 and once we understand that we're a part of this family, and this family, at least for me, I'm like, the history doesn't end with the Korean War, but it goes all the way back to creation. There's a way in which I claim that identity and that genealogy, and I understand this is who I am. And why is this so important? How does this connect with mercy? Because when we recognize that Israel and the people of God, those are our people, we recognize that we are part of a people who were once on the oppressive end of injustice. We were once enslaved and now have been set free. We are people who have experienced God's rescue. And this is when God says to Israel, love the foreigner and the immigrant and the outsider. Why? Because you were once a foreigner. And you know, every time you read that, I'm like, I wasn't, that doesn't, that's us. That's my family. Those are my people. We went through that if you are a follower of Jesus. Those are our people. That's our history. The Exodus is our history. And if that is our history and that is where we come from, then we should be compelled to live into that story and to be people of mercy because we have been shown mercy over and over again in our history. All right, I spent too long on that one. Okay, first one. Uh, merciful life it speaks into our identity. It tells us who we are. Second thing, it speaks into our brokenness. It answers this question, how can I be healed how can I be healed? Before I came to Boston, I came up here in 2002, I ended up in a pretty bad fight. I won't go into all the details. I ended up in the hospital, ended up with 16 stitches on my face, and I still have a scar. Um, and I remember coming into Boston and being an angry, angry guy. And part of it, it was like I had just um, been attacked. I felt like I was just been violated. Um, I did some research to figure out who these guys were that did this to me. Um, I had friends who were trying to figure out how to retaliate and get back at these people. I was really angry. And I came to Boston, and I went through counseling. And I went to my church, and I got prayer. And I went to counseling, and I got prayer. And I went to counseling, and I got prayer. But every day, I'd be crying in the shower. I'd be punching walls. I'd be so furious. And, and I'd learn more and more about these guys that this, did this to me. And it's down in Baltimore. And I was like, dude, I'm going back there. I'm going back there, and I'm going to do something crazy. And this was my state of mind when I came up here. And there's a point, and maybe some of you guys can relate with this. You're like, I don't know if I'm ever going to not be angry. Or I don't know if I'm ever going to not feel this way. Or I don't know if I'm ever going to get better. Or I don't, know if I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to get over this. I just don't know. I was just so angry. But then when I came uh, to the city, um, and I'm going to skip some details here, I got involved in, in, in working with high-risk youth um, in this city, um, some of the highest-risk youth. And, I, and, and one of the, 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 the first people that I met, he was 15 years old, and, and I got to know him. And I remember this day, he calls me up, and he goes, Larry, I ordered a pizza. I didn't have any money, so I beat up the guy, and I left him in the park. Um, and I'm just telling you, just because. And I remember getting that call, and I was like, in the world. And I remember this feeling within me of like these random acts of violence. I can't deal with that because I was a victim of these random acts of violence. So here is this kid, 15, committing random acts of violence. And he went on to rob banks and he went on to rob taxi drivers and he ran on, went on to serve all sorts of time in prison. And, but man, this guy, God brought me into his life and a lot of people like him. And God got me deep into his life deep into his life. And you see, mercy compelled me to get into his life. And as I got deeper into his life, I got to see his life. 
And I got to see his home life. And I got to see the abuse in his household. I got to see the trauma in his household. I got to hear the stories of how his mom uh, committed adultery with one of his classmates in high school. And I remember when I hear these stories, I would be like, man, if I were 15 and that was my story, I'd be exactly where this kid is. The only reason I'm not doing the things that this kid is doing is because that was not my story. There is this weird thing that happened that the more invested I got and the more I began to see what goes on in the background of somebody who perpetrates so much violence, the more I, more I kind of saw, the more compassion I felt and the more mercy I felt and the more I understood. And you know what? At some point, and I can't sort of pinpoint it, I was healed of my own anger. Because at some point, I recognized that the people who had done this to me most likely had similar stories. When we live lives of mercy, it helps us see the other side of life. It helps us to understand, and we say this in the church all the time, hurt people hurt people. And we can take, when we live merciful lives, take the most impossible wounds in our lives from others. Some of the deepest are from our own families. You all know that. But when we live merciful lives, it can bring perspective. It can bring healing. God can bring us into the lives of people who commit these things, can bring us into the lives who struggle, bring us into a different perspective that you have well, not, you've never seen before. And it brings healing in a way that, you know, I love counseling, but it, it'll, it'll come in a way that counseling could never bring. Mercy. Mercy also speaks into our purpose. It answers the question, why are you here? What are you doing with your life? <laughs> Every time I ask that question, people tense up. They're like, oh, I hate that question. What are you doing with your life? It speaks into our purpose. Mercy, when we uh, think about it, uh, we, we, we need to remember we've been saved, but we've been saved for a purpose. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 tells us this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. And we love that verse. We're like, yeah, we've been saved by grace, not by works. Then the next verse. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We've been saved, but we've been saved for a purpose. We've been saved for good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. And so what is the purpose of your life? Well, one way to answer that question is to say you've been saved to live a merciful life. You've been saved to be merciful. You've been saved to be merciful. So let me illustrate it this way a little bit. Um, a couple summers ago, my wife ran this race. It's like Tough Mudder, but different. It's like this obstacle course race. And so she runs this race, uh, and she invited one of her friends uh, to join her on this team and be a part of this race. And so she runs this race, and I'm with the kids. Um, I have four boys, and we're at the finish line, and we're waiting for her to come. And we're kind of hanging out. Yeah, I got a crew. I got a little basketball team on my side. And so, so we're hanging out at, at the finish line, and my wife shows up. And she, she crosses the finish line, and we're excited for her. And the first thing's out of her mouth. She goes, where's Christina? And I was like, dude, she's, I think I saw her. She was struggling. She was way back there. So my wife does this. She takes a, a, some water, and she books, and she goes back in the other direction, and she runs that race backwards. She runs it backwards, finds her friend, and then they both come across the line smiling and laughing together. This 
is what mercy looks like and what our lives are supposed to be. You see, when, when Jesus goes to the cross and he says, it is finished, you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I have finished the grueling part of the race. I finished the part where, 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 where you war against your own flesh. I, I, I finished the part of the race where you are a slave to your own sin. I finished that part of the race. That part is dead and buried. Now you get to run the fun part. You get to run the race backwards. You get to run the race backwards. And while everybody around you is trying to be first and clawing and trying to climb over each other, you're running in the other direction. And everyone's like, do you even know which way the finish line is? And you're like, yeah, I know. But this is way more fun. And, 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 and so we run the race in the wrong direction. And what are we doing when we go in the wrong direction? We are looking for the people who are struggling. We are looking for the people who have been left behind. We are looking for the people who have been trampled. We're looking for the people who have lost their way. And by being so, we be lights. We're streams of living water in the desert. We fight for justice. We set the oppressed free. And we lay down our lives in the process of doing so. Here's the genius. When we do this, we're set free. But then God sets everybody free through this process. God's so smart. (laughs) He sets us free, but he sets everybody free through this process. If you do not understand that this is the purpose of your life, your life will look weird. It will just look weird, and it will not make sense. Your faith will crumble because it will not make sense. You will not be able to put the pieces back together again. You are saved for a purpose, and it's to run the other direction. If you keep running the the direction that everybody else is going, it will stop making sense at some point. Let me tell you how crazy this gets. When we're told that we're saved, Jesus tells us that he takes our place. You guys know that language? Jesus says he takes our place. He takes our punishment. And that's controversial, and you can deal with that and talk to the pastors about that. But he says, man, he takes our place and takes our punishment. So what does that mean? It means that we're in a jail cell. We're in a jail cell, and we're a slave to ourselves. And Jesus comes, and he opens up the jail door. Woo! He opens up that jail door, and then Jesus comes into the jail. And he says, I will take the punishment for you, and you can go. I have set you free. I have set you free, and you can go. But the problem is that we need to understand, he, he's let us go. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go. We're supposed to go. We're supposed to go. But a lot of times, if we don't understand that, we don't go. We stay in the jail cell. And this is what we do. We sing songs. I've, you know, my chains are gone. I've been set free. But you're singing it inside the jail. And at some point, it's you and Jesus sitting next to each other with the jail door open. And Jesus is like, this makes no sense. One of us should get out of here. <laughs> that person's supposed to be you. <laughs> it is finished. It is finished. He's opened up that door. He's run the grueling part of the race. Run the other direction. So that's why Paul says, don't run the wrong race. Don't run that race everybody else is. Run the race that has been set out for you. Living lives of mercy. This is what we've been made to do. Here's the final thing. Living lives of mercy, it speaks into our desires. Into our desires. There's a lot being written about this lately because what people realize is your desires will trump your will every single time. Your desires will trump your will every single time. I don't care what you believe. I don't care if you're like, I'm going to do this, 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 this. At the end of the day, your desires will end up trumping everything. And so what needs to happen then? We need to have our desires shaped. How do you do that? How do your desires actually change? When I got married to my wife, my wife eats zero fast food. She grew up on 
almost no fast food. I am the exact opposite. I grew up on fast food like three times a week, Taco Bell, KFC, McDonald's, back to Taco Bell, circle of life. That's all I did over and over and over and over again. I grew up in a household that my parents, they eat fast food all the time, and they would do this thing where they would get fast food from like three or four different places and bring them to the table for dinner. So we'd have a Whopper and a Big Mac and a taco for dinner. It was awesome. That's my childhood. My wife grew up with none of that. So of course we get married. And of course she sees the way that I eat. And she's like, that's disgusting. (laughs) And then she does this. First year of marriage. Stop eating that stuff. Stop eating that stuff. And how do I respond? You're not the boss of me. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) So this is our fight. But what ends up happening when you get married? What ends up happening when you get married? I have stopped eating fast food. Not entirely, but it's trickled. And, and, and I don't have that, 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 that urge anymore. <laughs> I don't need that fix anymore. <laughs> I've been set free, whatever. I'm, I, 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 I don't do that. And, and I'm like, what happened there? And this is what we need to understand. The, the, the deepest sort of changes in our lives happen in the context of relationship. The deepest changes in our lives happen in the context of relationship. When you come to a church, we're like, stop doing this and do that. Your desire will trump your will every time. Instead, instead, we need to talk about relationship because relationship is where the, our deepest sort of transformation happens. Now, by the way, unfortunately, my wife now eats a little bit of fast food. Okay? But relationships change us in the deepest way possible. That's why uh, you talk like your friends, dress like your friends, listen to the same music as your friends. It's why married people talk the same, dress the same. They start looking the same after a while. This is what relationships do. So here's the point, and hopefully you can see it. At the end of the day, we walk with Jesus. At the end of the day, and this is why the church has been around forever, and this is why, you know, I can come up here and rail on a bunch of stuff, but it still comes back to the same things. Walk with Jesus. Read your Bible. Pray. Be in community. Keep walking. Keep, you know, have you ever uh, walked with a friend down the esplanade or somewhere, and you're so deep in conversation, and then you're just like, hey, how do I just walk two miles? Our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be like that. You walk with Jesus. You walk with Jesus. You have relationship with Jesus, and then you look up, and you're like, hey, I don't want crap-ass food anymore. Hey, I'm not drawn to those sins anymore. What exactly happened here? Well, relationship It changes us in deep and profound ways. And that's my encouragement to you here today, is to continue to do what you are already doing. Walk with this person, Jesus. I'm going to say one more thing, but I'm going to invite the worship team up first. So worship team, I'm going to have you guys come up. Um, And I like saying this at the end of my sermons over at my church. I say sometimes when you hear messages, um, there's a difference between conviction and guilt. And some of you guys have seen this, right? Conviction and guilt. So conviction looks like this. Guilt looks like this, right? Easy. So, conviction. If you feel convicted by the message, your role here is to step into it, right? If, you, if you're convicted, if you're hearing God's words and you're like, oh, I, need, I know what I need to do, and I know what I need to give up, and I got my priorities all mixed up, and I'm running the right, same race as everybody else, and I need to make some changes in my life, go do it, okay? Go do it. If you're convicted, step into it. If you feel guilty and you hear these messages and you're like, I'm the worst, Here's good news for you. Our faith is not in you. Our faith is in Jesus. Jesus is the one who runs that race. Jesus is our strength. So your prayer today, if that's where you're at, you don't hang your head. You pray this prayer, Jesus, help. 
That's it. You know what that's it? That's it. Jesus helped. Because what happens? You say, Jesus help, then the creator of the universe comes in, all bets are off. Jesus does what he does. Okay? Jesus help if you're hanging your head. And the final category, which I love, uh, if you feel apathetic, if you're like, man, I don't even like this speaker. Where are our normal pastors? Some of you are checked out. Some of you are thinking about your plans afterwards. You're a brick wall. It's still good news for you. Still good news for you. Because no matter what you do, guess what? Guess what? This God will find you. There are seasons in life where you need to find God. There are other seasons in life where God will find you. And if you walk out that door, and you're like, man, whatever that was, and you go out that door, just know this. You're not leaving alone. There's a God, and our God is a persistent God. And surely goodness and mercy will pursue you all the days of your life. Let me pray for us, and we'll close. Jesus, we thank you that you are God, that we are not. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend in this place. Whether we are convicted, whether we need to say, God, we need you, whether we feel like there is a wall up, for whatever reason, we might be bored, we might be hurting. God, you know us. So help us to realize that you are here and that you love us. And you've never left us alone, never, ever alone. You've been with us and you're so faithful. And the work that you did in the past with us, you will be faithful to bring it to completion. Help us, God, to live lives of mercy the way that you did. And help us to follow in your footsteps. And because you go ahead of us, when we live merciful lives, we walk on sacred ground. Because it's the same ground that our Lord walked. And so God, help us to recognize the ground that we walk on has fundamentally changed underneath us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's rise to worship.